Gospel of John, chapter 1. In verse 14, John provides a clear statement of purpose for his writing. And he says this, and we've already studied it, but it's good to be reminded. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The signs that are recorded, and there's not a lot of them, in the Gospel of John are all intended to reveal the glory of God through His Son, Jesus the Christ. John specifically uses the word sign rather than the word miracle to underscore the purpose of each divine manifestation. That is, to point the reader to something greater revealed through the event. The signs that Jesus did were not an end in themselves. They were a means to a greater end to his glory. The positioning of the sign that we see in John chapter 2, the first of them, obviously is of crucial importance because it's not merely intended to be the first by number. The events that will follow will show us that it actually functions as the head, the clue, or the key to all of the signs that Jesus will perform or that are described for us in John's gospel. In fact, I would go as far to agree with G.L. Borchert, who says the one who understands this sign should understand the point of all the signs. Ultimately, all signs point to Jesus. The title of the message then is All Signs Point to Jesus. Our passage is in John chapter 2, in verses 1 through 11. The story that we come to today is the story of the wedding feast at Cana. Now, before I get into it or read from it, let me say this. This is not about wine or alcohol use. Don't make it about that. That's not what it's about. This is not about um, Mary intervening as some sort of intermediary between the people and Christ in an ongoing fashion. Doesn't have anything to do with that. Uh, This is not about whether or not Jesus' presence defines for us doctrine relative to Christian marriage. Have anything to do with that? Those are all things that people inject into the text that aren't there. And they try to make something out of them that doesn't apply and has nothing to do with the point of the text. And in the process, what is missed is the point. And so I want us to understand the primary emphasis, the point, because I believe that if you understand clearly what is being taught in the wedding feast of Cana, you will understand even more so in some of the other signs that Jesus will do that are recorded by John. But beyond that, you'll always have an understanding that everything that we experience that is a revelation or manifestation of God, whether it is something unique and unexpected or whether it is a part of the common everyday experience of life, always is intended to point us to a greater glory. 
We are moving, as Paul describes it, from one degree of glory to another. Why? Because we're headed for the ultimate glorification that will come when we are at home with him. In verses 1 through 5 then of chapter 2, it says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and then the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. The first thing that I'd like for us to consider in this first five verses is a higher priority. A higher priority. While there is much that is made of the third day designation, and I've already addressed the issue of trying to reduce the Bible to a newspaper approach to reporting a story along the way and to understand this as a selection of events through a narrative means that helps us to see the life of Christ, there still is a reality that we must not ignore any part of the Bible And it is a mistake given that it is all inspired by the Holy Spirit. So what is this third day? The fact is further emphasized since the story introduces us to something else. It introduces us to the word hour. As Jesus says, my hour has not come. We'll see this throughout the Gospel of John and it's important. It is a reference to his fullest expression of glory that will come through his death and resurrection. Jesus will not say his hour has come until that time just before he is arrested, beaten, and crucified. Over and over, this is a reminder, so that when he says it was the third day, I'm not sure how that fits into the chronological order. Here's what I do know. I do know that for John, he's designating it as an important day. Was it the third day of the wedding feast? Because they usually ran for seven days. Uh, was it the third day of some other? Was it the third day since the last statement that we have in John's gospel? I don't know. And I can't say for sure. What I do know is that he wouldn't have put a day on it had it not been important. We remember specific dates, don't we? Visit a graveyard, a cemetery. All of the stones have dates. There's a reason for that. The birth and the death are marked with dates. And then all of that life is contained in the dash between them. And while the dash may be meaningless to someone who doesn't know, to a loved one, family member, or friend, that dash represents all of the shared experiences of that life. Those dates mark the brackets. We celebrate birthdays. Do you celebrate birthdays in your household? We do. We remember them. My wife sends cards not only to our immediate family, but she sends them to our extended family. 
And so nieces and nephews and their children and the extended family, they always get a remembrance on their birthday. It's a lot to keep up with. It clutters the calendar on my phone. The birthdays of my grandchildren and of the extended family of grandchildren all hang on a rack by month with their names on it in our dining room. We remember a special events, the date that someone else came into your family or your own birth date. What I'm telling you is that the date isn't the focal point here. What is the key is understanding that the designation makes what follows important. And what makes it important is it introduces us to the hour. So what about the narrative story? Um, Jesus, his disciples, Mary, his mother, all present. Mary obviously had some responsibilities. It's entirely possible that this particular wedding involved family members. But nonetheless, she is a part of the proceedings. It says to us that when the wine runs out, she turns to Jesus for help. The dynamic shows her to be the person in charge when this crisis occurs. But it also shows something about the unique relationship between a mother and her firstborn. That's what this is. This is Mary turning to Jesus. I know there's a lot of speculation about what was Jesus like when he was a child. Was he constantly... Doing miracles along the way? Was he, you know, providing uh, whatever the necessities of the household were? That's all, as far as I'm concerned, ridiculous. If you want to know what Jesus was like when he was a child, think about what you were like when you were a child. Because I think that's what he was like. When Jesus grew up as a young person, what did he do? He learned the skills of a carpenter. So that Jesus, after his father's death, actually became known as a carpenter. Still today, his designation includes that he was a carpenter. He was from Nazareth. That was how he was designated by the disciples he called. That's how he was known by the people around. There was nothing unique. This is nothing more than a normal interaction between a mother and her firstborn son, who she has looked to, obviously, after the death of her husband, for some leadership. She turns to him. Because he has miraculous powers? I don't think she knows he has miraculous powers yet. He, she knows he's different. She knows that he was conceived miraculously. She knows he is destined for things that are beyond her imagination. But because they're beyond, she doesn't understand them yet. Don't make this something that it's not supposed to be. This is supposed to be the normal course of a conversation between a mother and a son. But as you can see, she still holds a dominant position. Moms, how many of you have adult sons? You still try to dominate them? Boy, my mother did. She did right up to the end. Um, and she was good at it. <laughs> she, she did it sweetly and pleasantly. And yet you just knew You just knew it wasn't worth the challenge. (laughs) That's what's happening here. 
Does she know he's different? Sure she does. But I don't think she has any clue as to what that looks like. Jesus reverses the order with what appears to be an abrupt statement that some have assumed is disrespectful. While the words may seem disrespectful in a modern sense, they were not at all in the ancient world. What Jesus was doing was creating what has been described as polite distance. And he did it in a way that wasn't hurtful to her. How do we know this? Well, there is one other occasion. In fact, you're not going to see Mary in the, in the discourse and narrative story again until she stands with John at the cross. And how does Jesus address her? Exactly the same as he does here. He addresses her by extending his care and concern for her future through the beloved disciple. She says, behold, your son. John took over for Jesus when he was gone and took care of Mary. This isn't disrespect. This is distance to gain perspective. Immediately, he tells her and the small group with him, my hour has not come. In other words, everything that Jesus is doing, he is doing in obedience to the will of his heavenly Father according to a divine schedule that is not his own, but that which God has set forth. His hour has not come. Jesus has come for one particular thing, and that thing is going to be revealed in the fulfillment, the highest fulfillment of the will of God that will occur when he gives himself as an atonement for our sins. Everything else is a contribution or a directional lead up to that reality. This establishes that principle. It sets this in motion. It reminds us of the reality. He is putting everything with those who are closest to him in perspective. Immediately, as he tells her that his hour has not come, Mary accepts this new order of priority and she instructs the servants to do what Jesus says, no longer what she says. Rather than trying to understand the dynamic in a way that you can relate to in your own particular setting, let me, let me suggest that it might be helpful to understand the principles of the dynamic and relate to it that way. Because what we see is that a lot of times when we approach God through prayer and when we consider what Christ is doing in our lives, kind of like what I was saying with regard to the Asbury Revival is that sometimes we give God direction. I need this, and I need it in this way, and I need it at this time. And, and not only do I need it, but I really kind of deserve it because I'm a pretty good guy, you know. I mean, there, I realize there's still flaws and failings, but God, come on. There's a lot of people worse than me. We want to direct what God is doing and how his will unfolds so that it remains consistent with our own desires or expectations. And I promise you, whenever you attempt to put God in a box, he is not going to go. And it is not going to be something that you are going to enjoy. 
God is not confined or limited, and his will does not conform to our own, but quite the opposite. Everything that we experience in this life through the process of discipleship and spiritual growth is intended to bring us into conformity with him so that we would, as his hour approached, agree with Jesus and say, not my will, but yours be done. There is a higher priority. And the wedding supper in Cana shows it to us. Secondly, there is a better purification. In verse 6, it says, There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Hmm. Interesting story, is it not? A better purification. To understand the whole significance of the mention of the jars and the amounts and all the details that surround that, because you don't want to ignore those details, you don't want to go to seed on them, but you don't want to ignore them either, notice how he specifically states stone jars. That was not common. What were jars typically made of? They were earthen jars. They were made from clay and they were fired in a kiln. They were glazed and, and created a, a surface on them so that they were watertight. But the problem is that that material remains porous. And so the Jews, who had a fanatical approach to purification rites and outward signs of purity, deemed that earthen jars were inappropriate for use in ritual washing procedures and only jars that had been hewn from solid stone would do. That's what they had. Stone jars that were going to hold 20 to 30 gallons of water each, all of them intended to be used for ritual washings. Do you remember how Jesus condemned the Pharisees because they spent so much time cleaning the outside surface of the cup, but the inside, he said, is filled with all manner of corruption that they ignore. It was nothing more than a metaphor to remind us that we give all of our attention to this external part of our faith while ignoring the depth of the need that exists in the inward part of life. True spirituality does not occur in the outside. And whatever we are doing outwardly, if it does not emanate from the inward work of the Spirit within, and if it does not contribute to the overall reality of the glory of God, it should be questioned. We know how to look good, don't we? Look like a Christian, walk like a Christian. I think, that, uh, I think that we've got the outward part down. We talk about how the world has changed so much and information exchange is almost immediate and instantaneous worldwide. That is true. 
But have you noticed that as we have seen an increase in this sort of public awareness of public things, we have also seen a decrease as people have become more and more cut off from one another? What does that mean? It means it's easier to live in secret. How do we protect it? Privacy. Everything's about privacy. I got an email this week suggesting that I needed to have my own VPN. And I thought, uh, what's a VPN? <laughs> and so I had to look it up. I kind of knew, but I wasn't 100% on it. And, and I thought, yeah, they're really concerned about my privacy and about, you know, the spam and the phishing uh, schemes and scams that go on. And I get all this, I get calls from, uh, from telemarketers that are trying to get my information. And I get emails. I've got a friend who sends out a regular Facebook post saying, if you get an email from me and I'm asking you for money or for a, uh, a prepaid credit card or I'm asking you for something else, like that, he said, it's false. I'll never, ever, ever send you an email that says that. I have had the same thing. People get emails from me on an occasion. My wife gets them from me all the time asking her for stuff. If I want stuff from her, I'm going to ask her face to face. They don't know she's my wife. Pay attention to the heading in the email. It may not be from me or whoever you think it's from. So we have all these scams and all of this design, and so you need a VPN. If you keep going along with the thing and they convince you of the need for greater privacy, if you're going to operate in the digital realm, then what you will eventually get to is the point of the VPN itself. And then what you're going to discover is, oh, by the way, there is a subscription fee. Isn't it always the way? I'm not suggesting people need to create stuff that uh, doesn't have that has value that isn't going to be worth money. I'm not saying that. Why don't you start with that? Well, you're not going to start with that. You got to convince me that I need it first. You got to scare me into submission. I don't scare as easily as I used to. Well, you know they could find out about you. They could know where you went. So what? If you want to know how, if you want to sit on your computer all day and track Scott Perry as he goes from 1051 Deerfield to 444 Beeman, occasionally to the gas station to get a soda or over to Walmart, but against his better judgment and his own perceived will, uh, then you, you go ahead and do it. If that's what you want to look at all day long, then you go ahead and look at it. What am I saying? I'm saying that our insistence on privacy is oftentimes nothing more than a ruse to validate secrecy. Hmm. Don't worry so much about the outside if you're going to ignore the inside. Jesus was looking at the situation where they had all of these earthen jars gathered there, six of them, in order to provide all of this external purification, while at the same time oblivious to the deeper needs of the heart. The use of these jars is indicating to us a transition that is taking place in John's Gospel from reliance on ancient rituals that were at best temporary 
to the eternal dependence on the finished work of Jesus through faith. What those things could not provide, Jesus is about to fill to the brim with the very best. What Jesus was about to provide was a better source of true purification than anything that had been known to date. Water could cleanse the outside, but only Jesus can cleanse the inside. And interestingly enough, would it not be the wine that would ultimately be the symbol of his own shed blood? I don't believe in coincidence, but I do believe in providence. The proof of this is evident when the water turns to wine is offered to the master of the feast. He immediately goes to the bridegroom to commend him for having saved the best for last. The symbolism is clearly a reference to Jesus as the fulfillment of the image that is portrayed in the ritual washings. The purification that we desire and desperately need that takes us from broken sinners filled with unrighteousness to those who've been declared righteous and made children of God comes through faith and reliance on Jesus Christ alone and his shed blood. Jesus is not only the one they were waiting for, but his work demonstrates that everything else is lacking. Jesus is not just the fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus is your only option. Everything else will pale in comparison to the grace found only in Jesus. Verse 11 provides us with the evangelist's own explanation. And he says this, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. The last verse shows that the ministry and work of Jesus that will march unswervingly to the cross has begun. This is the first of his signs. It reminds us that a sign is more than just a wonder or an event to be remembered. It is a powerful act for the one who has eyes to see because it points to the reality of who Jesus really is. John has made it clear that his intent is to show forth the glory of God as, the, as revealed through his son, Jesus Christ. The Cana story provided a manifestation of that glory, the theme of glory that we read about in verse 14 of chapter 1 does not merely include bright lights and mythical halos, which is a common way that people describe glory. But glory in John is derived from the Old Testament ideas of God's mighty power perceived by works that cannot be explained in any other way than this is God. No one could explain what happened at the wedding supper other than God. In John, then, the mighty God is acting in Jesus. The signs, therefore, point the reader to the reality that God the Father is now at work in his Son, Jesus Christ. One other interesting note. This didn't happen for everybody gathered at the feast. Remember, the only ones who saw what happened were the disciples and Mary and the servants. This was not a public 
sign that Jesus did that other people knew about. Neither the head waiter nor the bridegroom himself had a clue what was going on. No one else that was gathered at the feast who enjoyed the benefit of Jesus' sign had any idea of its origin. The only ones who knew were those who were behind the scenes that Jesus chose to reveal himself to. Jesus doesn't often perform such things in an outward fashion. Why? Because the problem with that is when that happens, it tends to draw attention not to Christ, but to whoever the proclaimer of it is. We have to be really, really careful and understand that what Jesus is doing is intended to transform hearts and lives from the inside out. And that it's going to begin in what may seem to be a rather subtle fashion, but oh my goodness, how it's going to catch fire. What am I telling us? I'm telling us that what God does in your heart individually that nobody else may know that brings honor and glory to him and serves his purpose and fulfills his will is enough. It doesn't need a headline. It doesn't need a picture to accompany the post. It doesn't need any other acknowledgement other than the character and nature and heart of God revealed in the transformation of your life. The last phrase of verse 11 says his disciples believed in him. The followers of John the Baptist now had become disciples of Jesus Christ. God led them through the Messiah's messenger as John the Baptist proclaimed the one who would come. And he led them to an undeniable experience now with the Messiah himself. Their response is simple faith. They believed in Jesus. The question remains, how is God leading you today? Take a good look at his word. I think you'll find that all signs point to Jesus.